Well, welcome back to the Gambone Law Podcast. I am Alfonso Gambone, and today I am joined by attorney Peter Weinbreak. And Peter's firm uh, specializes in representing workers in cases involving the failure to pay proper wages. So, Peter, welcome. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Alfonso. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, so, Peter, if you could tell our audience a little about yourself, your background, uh, what you do now to represent clients and their families. So, our law firm is called Weinbrick and Santillo, and we're we're located in Dresher, Pennsylvania, which is a town just north of Philadelphia, kind of near like Glenside and Jenkintown in that general area. And what our law firm um, is t- entirely dedicated to is we represent workers in what's called wage and hour cases. Those are cases where our clients are seeking to be paid um, proper overtime pay, proper minimum wages, um, and seeking to be paid for all the hours that they work. And we file our cases. Some of them we, we represent individual employees. And then in other cases, uh, are, which are called class actions, will represent groups of employees. And okay. those cases are filed um, in federal court sometimes, and sometimes they're filed in state court. So we have, uh, we, we've, we've, we've handled hundreds and hundreds of these cases, which I know we'll be talking about today. Um, we only represent workers. We don't represent businesses. Uh, we made a decision a long time ago um, to just represent one side uh, on these issues. And, um, and, and even though we're located just outside of Philadelphia, our practice really takes us throughout the whole eastern side of the state. We have a satellite office in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and we travel around and uh, work these cases. Um, so, so we're pure what you would call contingency fee plaintiff side employment rights lawyers. Okay, and now um, in terms of your background, are you from Pennsylvania originally? Uh, did you go to school here? Yep, so I, I grew up in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, okay. uh, which is just north of Scranton, yes. and went to Abington Heights High School, which is the local public high school, and I went to Lehigh University for my undergraduate, and then I went to Temple University for my um, law school uh, degree and graduated from there in 1991. And, um, and then I uh, had various jobs. I was the chief labor and employment lawyer for the city of Philadelphia for a while um, over at the city solicitor's office. And I've worked at a number of law firms, including the Ballard Spar Law Firm in Philadelphia. And I worked at the New York City Law Department. But about, about 15, eh, maybe it's going on 17 years ago, I started the law, uh, this law firm, which is a pure, um, as I said, is purely dedicated to uh, wage and hour law. Okay. So yeah. now in terms of these cases that you represent clients in, if, if if we could talk about these cases now, obviously everyone's, I mean, not everyone's paid the same way. So if we could just kind of break it down in terms of the types of cases that you handle. So if we could maybe start with workers who are paid on an hourly basis so sure um, so in in those cases what does a typical claim look like so our cases on behalf of hourly employees mostly concern 
a claim that the workers are not getting paid for all the hours that they work. Um, and under Pennsylvania law, workers, and remember, when I, when, I, when I lay out some of these legal principles, I'm doing it in a very generalized way. You know, the law is sure. much more complicated. But as a general matter, workers are entitled to be paid for all of the time when they're required by the employer to be doing stuff, uh, to oversimplify it. And with our hourly clients, the claims of unpaid work tend to uh, kind of fall into a number of different buckets. Number one, we see a lot of situations where employees, prior to the start of their paid shift, have to engage in work-related activities, okay? So one example of that is a case that I litigated all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court concerning Amazon warehouse workers who would um, have to go through um, security um, uh, post, this was actually post shift security clearances um, to make sure that they weren't stealing anything from the workplace. We said, well, hey judge, that's time in which the workers are required to be in the warehouse and to be doing something that's required by the company, so they should be paid for it. And the Supreme Court agreed with that position. Um, at the beginning of the shift, um, the types of things that we see, especially in warehouses, um, which is where we have a lot of our current cases against warehouses, is um, the COVID screenings. You know, you might remember in 2020, 2021, a lot of employers were making employees go through temperature checks, all kinds of COVID screenings. Um, we've claimed in a, in a number of lawsuits that that time is compensable under Pennsylvania law. The other kinds of things we'll see is we'll see pre-shift meetings um, where employees have to gather and the boss will tell them where they're going to go for um, where that what their job assignment is going to be for that day. Mm. We see a lot of um, cases in the construction and landscaping industry where workers have to report to the shop and then they have to travel from the shop to the work site, but they don't start getting paid till their scheduled start time at the work site. So that's one type of case, which is workers not getting paid for pre-shift activities. Um, then we see situations where workers don't get paid for time they spend working during an unpaid meal break, right? Many employers will, um, will automatically clock you out for a half hour or an hour each day for a meal break but the employees are actually working through that meal break. That can be illegal. And then we see cases where at the end of the shift, workers are continuing to work. Uh, maybe they clock out, but then they have to finish up. In the warehouses, which some of these warehouses, as you know, Al Alfonso, are huge, right? You mm -hmm. might clock out at your assigned location in the warehouse. You might have to walk a quarter or a half mile just to get um, just to get out of there, right? That kind of um, that kind of time, and and then what we see a lot with um, nursing, um, visiting nurses, um, home health aides, different kinds of workers that are going out into clients' homes to check up on them. A lot of those jobs require um, the therapists or the nurses or the CNAs to fill out a lot of paperwork at home. 
concerning what they observed during their visits. They have to fill out charts, etc. And because they're so busy during the day, they don't have a chance to do that while they're actually with the client or with the patient. So they put it off and they do it at home. And that kind, mm. those kinds of activities can be compensable too. Okay. So those are some, um, just to give you some flavor for right. the kinds of uh, hourly uh, employee cases that we do. Well, so in terms of the amount of time that a claim can go back. So for instance, a person says that, hey, I think that, that I'm being treated unfairly. Uh, it's been going on for a while. Um, uh, how far can a claim go back? Is there, I guess, a statute yeah. of limitation? There is. So the statute of limitations is three years. So you could go backwards in time three years from when you file the case. Okay. And, and there's a couple quick points I'd like to make regarding that. A lot of employees will say, I'm going to file a complaint with the Department of Labor. I'm not going to go to a private lawyer. I'm going to go to the State Department of Labor and Industry and file a complaint, or I'm going to go to the Federal Department of Labor and I'm going to fill out a form and file a complaint. Filling out those forms with those governmental agencies do not stop the running of the statute of limitations, right? So let's say, um, let's say that um, I, I filed a form with the Department of Labor today saying I was denied wages. I'd be able to go back to three years from today to February 24th of 2020. Let's say the, the investigatory agency kind of sits on that complaint for six or seven months. They eventually get an investigator assigned and then they say, ah, you know what? We looked at this. We're too busy. We can't handle it or um, we can't help you. Well, now you go to a lawyer and file a, a case a year from now. Well, now you're only going back um, to um, February of 2021 instead of 2020. You've let a year run off your statute of limitations. The, the other and, 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 and workers need to be mindful of that. The other thing um, that I would say that we get this question a lot. A lot of workers think they can't sue for unpaid wages if they're a former employee, that they have to be currently employed by the company that they're bringing the claim against. That's not true. So let's say, let's say I, a, 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 some, a worker comes into our firm and, and she quit that job a year ago. And I tell her, hey, I think you had a pretty good case. She could still sue that employer going back three years and she could capture the last two years of her employment. So you don't have to be a current employee to um, bring one of these cases. And then just a quick question here with regards to the employers. Uh, in terms of their representation, do they have, I guess, insurance for this or do they have to just retain counsel? I guess, on their own without any type of policy. Is there, is there an insurance policy that covers this? There sometimes. Okay. It's, it's not, um, this is not like personal injury litigation right. or workers comp where there's almost always insurance. Um, okay. Our cases, I'm going to say there's insurance maybe 20% of the time, 20, so, 25% of the time. So I would think that would be probably more advantageous for plaintiffs there because in the case of a employer that has insurance for it, I, 
I would imagine that there's a deductible that that's been paid already, and 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 that's and that's it. But in terms of if they have to go out and actually retain counsel and every month get hit with billable hours, they would I think that that would probably be more advantageous. Am I right? In in it in many respects, um, for for most employers, you're right. For for a bigger employer, um, for some of the really small employers. Um, they will just be like, this whole thing's going to get so expensive. We could just never pay and we don't care. And, you know, you get a default judgment against them and then you got to go collect the money. But for the most part, I do think that the fact that um, the employers are not able to um, go to an insurance company for their legal fees does give you give our clients some leverage in, in, in the right kinds of case. Okay, now in terms of, we just talked a little bit about hourly employees. Let's move on to salaried employees. So hourly employees, you're hired for a position, it's 40 hours a week, you're paid X number of dollars per hour. And it it would seem to me that's a lot easier to establish, you know, whether or not you're not being paid for the hours that you're there. But salaried employees now, you're hired at a job, and I would think that this would apply to a lot of maybe uh, recent college graduates or just college graduates in general who obtain positions with organizations. I know just from my own experience, my first job out of school, I wasn't an attorney. Uh, I was in the marketing field, and, and I was hired by a pretty big publishing company. And I remember when I uh, got the job, I was so happy to you know just get the first job out of college. They 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 gave me an offer letter and. It, and it had my salary. It was, I think it was like $27,000 a year, whatever it was. And um, I remember it was a start date. And I remember walking into my manager's office that first morning, that Monday morning. And I, I had, this, this was my first professional job, if you will. I mean, I had worked jobs as a lifeguard and things like that but as a kid. But this was my first right. job in an actual office. So I didn't really know. And I asked my parents, I said, you know, when, you know, and my dad said, listen, get there early, make sure you're on time. So I got there at uh, 8 8 a.m. sharp. And I asked my manager, well, you know, what time should I be here in the morning? What time do we, what time do we leave? So I guess in that way, I didn't really, I mean, I basically showed up every day at about 745 and we worked till about, you know, a little before six every day. So those cases I would think would be a lot harder to establish whether or not I wasn't being paid because there wasn't really a, I guess, a set day, if you will. So can you talk about that a little bit? One of the misimpressions, Alfonso, is that employees who are paid a salary are not entitled to overtime. And when I say overtime, I'm referring to hours worked over 40 in a week. Um, Overtime is not hours worked over eight in a day. Overtime is based on a week. So if you go over 40 hours in a week, that's overtime. So a lot of people will come to us and they'll say, well, I wasn't entitled to overtime because I was a salaried employee. Hmm. Under the law, um, there's certain exemptions from the overtime law. They're called the executive, professional, and administrative exemptions. And they're essentially meant to cover high-level employees. The executive exemption is really meant to cover um, salaried employees who have managerial responsibilities. The administrative exemption is meant to cover um, 
salaried employees who are really involved in the general running of the business. And the professional um, exemption is meant to cover employees such as doctors and lawyers, for example. Under the law, in order to be exempt from these overtime rules, meaning you're not covered by them, under one of these exemptions, you not only have to get paid a salary, you also have to actually be doing managerial work or administrative work or um, professional work. So for example, we um, have represented over the years a lot of store managers at the dollar stores, right? Now these store managers, they're called manager, they have the fancy title, they're paid a salary, and they work really, really long hours. And it's true too of a lot of the assistant managers too. Um, okay, well that's fine, except when we really look at what those managers do, they're spending all their time working the cash register, stocking shelves, and helping out customers. The fact of the matter is, in a lot of convenience stores and dollar stores, etc., there's not that much management that you really have to do. You might, you might spend most of your shift in there with just one or two other people. So we, in, in, in a case like that, we will say, well, the company has satisfied the requirement of paying a salary and they gave the person a fancy job title. But when we really look at what that worker is doing, it doesn't meet the definition of managerial work as that term is defined under the law. Mm. Um, we have similar cases um, involving social workers. Social workers are some of the hardest working uh, employees out there. And, and a lot of them work long hours and they do a lot of work from home. Um, they're, they're usually paid a salary and they're usually booked as exempt under the professional exemption. Um, we've made arguments successfully that social workers, if it's a social worker position where a master's degree is not a requirement of the position, it's probably um, not really an exempt position. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another example of salaried employees being misclassified as exempt from the overtime laws. And so we have lots of those types of cases. Um, and that's a big part of our practice. So if you're out there watching and you're paid a salary, don't just assume that because you're getting a salary or because you have a fancy job title, uh, that that entitles you to overtime. One of the business models that we see is companies will, we see this a lot in fast food, um, they'll say, we're going to staff our restaurant with a manager and two assistant managers. We're going to pay them a salary. We're going to make them work crazy hours. And then all of the hourly employees, we're not going to let any of them go above 32 hours a week, right? So what they're doing is they're taking those salaried employees. They're taking that, uh, they know they can get all that free extra labor from them. Um, um, and, and, and then... It's unfortunate for the salaried employees who aren't getting that overtime. It's also very unfortunate for the hourly employees who are losing the opportunity uh, to work more hours and to get overtime. Uh, so that's a common business model that we challenge and we've been challenging for many years. So for instance, let's use lawyers as an example. Um, attorneys hired at a, 
at a big firm, let's say, and um, they're doing legal work, but a firm finds that, hey, we have a big case and um, we need a lot of photocopies made for this for this case. And uh, they tell one of the junior associates, look, it's uh, five o'clock. We need all these things done. The paralegals are going for the day. And we need you to run down to the copy center and, and copy all these documents for us. And uh, it goes on for weeks or months that, that the associate is sent to the copy center, which might, might be happening, uh, and, and making copies into the night, just working an extra, let's say, an extra four or five hours. Would that be a potential claim? No, because under your scenario, um, that employee, that lawyer could not be a managerial employee and probably could not even be an administrative employee because of the mundane work that they're doing. But by virtue of the fact that the job requires a law degree, it's a professional job. Uh, so the, pro the professional exemption is really based on the kinds of qualifications you have to have to get the job more so than what you do. Really? Now, okay. Now, interestingly, along the lines of your of your of your comment, when you get into paralegals, um, some paralegals are exempt professionals if they have a type of paralegal job that really requires a lot of discretion and independent judgment. But it, but paralegals who are really doing very clerical work, like very form driven work or a lot of photocopying, a lot of just filing and stuff. Those types of paralegals are generally entitled to overtime. Um, so, so sort of within the law office environment, there are some there are some um, there, there are some misclassified paralegals out there. So in, in the example that I just put out there in terms of attorney or let's just say attorneys, uh, CPAs and even let's throw in their doctors too. Um, in a situation where, say, a medical degree or a law degree or a CPA was required for the job, but the employee was asked to do something that didn't require that degree or certification, they still wouldn't have a claim? Right. Uh, because, because they're professionals by virtue of the qualification they needed for the job. Okay. Um, the professional exemption is... Um, that you say about CPAs, if the if the person is a CPA, exempt. Where we do see a lot of good claims is um, staff accountants that are not CPAs, and they're doing more sort of bookkeeping type work. That kind of work can sometimes be non-exempt. Um, but with these exemptions that we're talking about, which are kind of called the white collar exemptions, because they're meant to apply to white collar employees where most of the action is is with respect to the executive or managerial exemption that's where we see most of the abuses is calling people managers even though they really don't have significant managerial responsibilities and okay. probably um probably 60 to 70 percent of all of the misclassification cases we handle concern that managerial or executive exemption. I understand. So now let's move to another area. I think probably one of the most popular areas would be uh, in cases of w workers who are paid 
mainly tips or, or with the majority of their compensation comes from tips. So servers, bartenders, uh, maybe perhaps uh, barbers and hairdressers as well. So in, th in those situations, I was always under the belief that an employer could pay those workers less than minimum wage because the understanding was that they were going to be basically paid through the tips that they earned rather than their hourly wage. But mm -hmm. from, from the little that I looked into this area, I found that that's not, not necessarily the case. Could you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of tip cases out there and it is confusing. So in Pennsylvania, the minimum wage is still quite low. It's only $7.25 an hour, which is the same minimum wage under the federal law. Restaurants, let's use restaurants as the clearest example. Restaurants are allowed to, in Pennsylvania, pay a, a, a server or a, another tipped employee as little as two eighty-three dollars an hour and make up the difference between that two eighty-three dollars an hour and the $7.25 minimum wage obligation through tips. That's called uh, that's called the employer taking a tip credit. In other words, the employer is take, getting credit for the customer tips um, um, in, in satisfying its minimum wage obligation to the server. That's a huge, huge benefit for restaurants. So there are certain requirements that the restaurants have to meet in order to enjoy that benefit. One of the requirements is um, they are supposed to pay the tipped employee the full minimum wage for time that the tipped employee spends doing non-tip generating work. Okay, so for example, if I'm working at a uh, at a restaurant and I'm a server, but I have to come in two hours early each day to um, get all the napkins uh, to set up to to do to to clean to set up the salad bar, to um, get everything ready for the day. That two hours, generally speaking, I should be getting paid $7.25 an hour for that, not the $2.83 an hour. So that's rule number one. I'm oversimplifying, but that's rule number one. Um, rule number two is where there's a tip pool. And what, what I mean by a tip pool is in a lot of restaurants, the, the tips get pooled and get distributed to other restaurant employees. Um, if any of a server's tips are getting distributed to other restaurant employees who are not directly involved in customer service, that violates the rules and the employer is not allowed to take the tip credit. So an example of that would be, a, a simple example would be, if you're a server and you're being forced to tip out the dishwasher, because the dishwasher isn't involved, isn't involved in the interaction with the customer, that violates the rules. The consequences to the restaurant of that violation are really significant. The restaurant would have to go back for every single hour worked by the server and pay the difference between that $2.83 an hour and $7.25 an hour for violating the rules. And that could add up to a lot of money. Sure. Um, where we get closer calls with this tip sharing stuff is if you've worked in restaurants, um, 
and those of the your viewers who've worked in restaurants might know the term an expediter, right? An expediter is a person who trays the food, gets it ready for the server. They're sort of the intermediary between the back of the house and the front of the house. Um, there's been a lot of cases about whether expediters are sufficiently involved in the customer interaction side of the business so that they can share in the tips without violating the law. And then the, 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 the last big no-no for restaurants is you can never share tips with management. Um, if restaurant ownership or management is keeping some of the tips, blatant violation of the rules, uh, they have to go back and pay that difference between 283 and 725 for every hour over a three-year period. So in our restaurant cases, those are generally the kinds of claims that we see. There's another issue out there with restaurants, which goes to the salaried employee issue that I was previously discussing. A lot of restaurants will have a, a manager and assistant managers who are paid a salary, but what ends up happening is those assistant managers um, spend a ton of their time helping out with the customers and basically waiting on tables. And so those assistant managers could have a claim for overtime because they're not really doing much managing. And it could be causing the, the tipped employees to have a claim because if those assistant managers are sharing in the tips, now you can be um, arguing that the tips are getting shared with management. So it's kind of a um, interesting dynamic when that happens. So now this is my last question for you. I know that, for instance, in my area of the law, criminal defense, uh, you know, people when they're arrested or charged with a crime know that they need a lawyer and their options are public defender or I'm going to hire a lawyer. In your area of practice, I would think that it's perhaps a lot harder for, for a person to understand that they have these rights. And, and to be upfront and honest with you, I'm obviously a lawyer and I don't even understand it, uh, a lot of these, of what you've just spoken about. So in terms of educating potential clients, uh, when you're trying to, I guess, um, speak to potential clients or um, tell the world, if you will, about your services, how, um, I mean, how do cases come to your firm? Is it, yeah. is it straight advertising? Is it referrals from, I mean, I guess, former clients? I mean, could you talk about that? Sure. It's a great question. It, it, and it's a frustration because you can't go see a lawyer if you don't know what you're right. It's a, it's a vicious, it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? Sure. You can't go talk to the lawyer until you know that, that your law has been violated, but you don't know the laws have been violated until you talk to the lawyer. So, um, the way we get most of our cases is um, other lawyers who will have uh, a lot of times it's workers' compensation lawyers. An employee will come in um, with a workers' comp claim and we'll start telling them some weird stuff about the wages and, and, the, and the lawyer will say that doesn't sound right and refer them to us. Um, other times it's, um, you know, people who have been terminated and then they go to see a lawyer and then they're really going to talk about they think they were wrongfully terminated, but that, that lawyer will say, well, I don't know if you've been wrongfully terminated, but you told me some funky stuff about how you were getting paid. I think you should go talk to Weinbrink, you know? So that's a big way we get our cases. 
Um, we do do, we, there are, you know, it's funny, Alfonso, this stuff is becoming more kind of known to the public, I think, in the last few years. So we will get uh, um, workers who um, find us on the website, you know, they're doing their own Google searches and they come upon our firm. And then we do get, um, um, we do get a lot of clients referred by other clients. And of course, that's the best kind of uh, referral because it means that your former client was pleased with the work that you did for them. Sure. And those former clients are very tuned into this kind of stuff because, you know, they've been through it once before. Okay. Um, so, so that's the, um, that's the main way we get our cases. We're sort of old school um, in how we market. Um, it's, it's really reputational more so than going out onto the um, internet and Facebook and doing a lot of that type of advertising. Uh, and of course, that's uh, more and more, more and more lawyers are relying on the internet for all their advertising and, and they're not, um, they're not getting it more, um, I don't know the right word, they're not, they're not. Organically. Organically, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we can do an entire uh, podcast on attorney marketing. So yeah. perhaps when I do that podcast with other lawyers, I'm, I will have you on as well. Yeah. And uh, I I want to do a podcast about attorney marketing practices and kind of uh, where the ethical line is and the unethical line yeah. and the various uh, marketing companies out there trying to track lawyers. And I feel like I get a solicitation call probably every day from someone telling me that we can rank you one on Google or or uh, who's managing your website today or all that. So, yeah. but anyway, this was great, Peter. I wanna thank you. If you could, once again, give your contact information to our viewers, uh, your phone number, your website address, and we will put it out to our audience. I wanna thank you again, but if you could do that, Sure. So the name of the law firm is Winebreak and Santillo, and my name is spelled W-I-N-E-B-R-A-K-E, and our and our website is www.winebreaklaw W-I-N-E-B-R-A-K-E-L-A-W dot com, and um, you could also learn a lot about the wage and hour laws on our website. Okay. Um, and um, and your phone number, Peter. Pardon me. And your office phone number. Oh, the office phone number is 215-884-2491. Great. And one thing I'll tell you, Alfonso, if any of your um, viewers call, first of all, please say that you saw us on this podcast. Um, and secondly, um, um, if you do call, we always have lawyers do our intake. We do not have paralegals or clerical staff do intake. Uh, what I have found over the years is because the, these wage and hour laws are so complex, there's a lot of times someone might call thinking that the wage and hour laws were violated in one respect, and they're wrong about that. But by talking to them and because we're lawyers, we might say, your, your rights weren't violated because of reason A, which is why you called, but we actually think they might have been violated because of reason B. And what I'm, I'm a big believer that if if non-lawyers are doing intake, they're not able to get to reason B. They just look at reason A, yes or no, done. So we try to we try to um, do that, and um, 
and uh, we're happy to speak with anyone who wants to call. Well, great. Uh, Peter, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. And um, I'm sure that our viewers and their families, if they need your services, will reach out. But again, thank you again for coming on the podcast. And I will speak with you soon. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me. It's been it's been fun. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you again for listening to the Gambone Law Podcast. As always, you can visit us on the website, gambonelaw.com, or call us at 215-755-9000 in Pennsylvania, 856-793-7429 in New Jersey, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you all very soon.